TuneIn is the audio platform with something for everyone. News. In order to secure convictions in a court of law, it is essential that we conclusively. Sports. That clock at four. Donchich. The step back three. You bet. Music. You set my world on fire. And even podcasts. Whatever you love, hear it right here. On TuneIn, go to TuneIn.com or download the TuneIn app to start listening. Welcome to Special Edition. I'm Paula Dagnan. This week on our program, we will continue our discussion with U.S. Attorney for the Middle District of Pennsylvania, David Freed. This time, he'll be talking about fighting drugs on his perspective. We'll also hear from someone who spent a lot of time in the world of sports with Sid Michaels Kavulich. The legislator passed away earlier this week. But right now, we're going to introduce you to Joe Leonardi. He's a local storyteller who gives us some insight into what it's like to follow your dream. Let's have you, Joe, give us a little bit of your background, because we're going to talk about a lot of different things that you're involved in, particularly in writing. So for anybody who might be listening okay. and is considering, where did you come from? Well, I, I grew up in Pittston. Uh, went, in the na- went in the Navy at age 17, right out of high school. I spent five years in the military, um, stationed in Maine, my first duty station, then Guam, and then the real hard one. They, they made me go to Hawaii for two years. <laughs> That was very brutal. <laughs> Fortunate enough to travel over half the world, all over the Pacific. I've been to Japan, Tokyo, the Philippines, Korea, um, because of my naval my naval service. I was out of the Navy. I ended up um, as a banker, and then I was in marketing for a little while. I was the marketing director for a communications firm, and I used to always dabble in radio. I was part-time at couple of local stations and we'll mention the one that's defunct WARD. I did Poco Weekend. <laughs> there you which go. A lot of people still remember, which is amazing to me. And then I went back to school later in life and became a chiropractor. I've been in practice now for, oh my God, 20 years, uh, close to 20 years. It's not long. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> and um, I also ran for Congress back in 2006. So you have pretty much a diverse background. I get bored easily. (laughs) And and now you're writing. I've always written. I wrote in high school. Um, I took creative writing courses. I've always been a storyteller. I like to tell stories. Um, I've written on and off throughout my life. I've written for newspaper articles sometimes. I wrote a couple of books on weight loss and fitness when I was in really good shape. And um, I wrote one novel on historical fiction. And then recently I decided to try and write more and just see if maybe I could tell these stories that were in my head. And do a lot of them have to do with your background and the travels? Oh, uh, my travels show up a lot. A mutual friend of ours, Brian Hughes, has told me he never has to go to Key West because <laughs> he's been there in my stories. <laughs> so, yeah, I do use a lot of my travels, places I've been, exaggerations of personal experiences in my storytelling. I think, um, you have to write what you know. Mm-hmm. Now, you mentioned Key West. Was there uh, any kind of a link between you and Key West? I vacationed there a lot. I've, um, I was a big fan of Ernest Hemingway, uh, his larger-than-life persona. And so when I went to Key West, well, every time I've been to Key West, which has been a while now, but I used to get down there two or three times a year, uh, I've 
I can do the Hemingway home tour. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then I and, got into his And know writing. all the cats by name. Oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> and then I got into his writing. I didn't come to his writing till later on. And what I've been doing now over the years is these last few stories are novel at length instead of trying to produce an entire novel. And I've taken his, his theory of omission where leaving things out, saying a lot with subtext. So this is kind of an experiment for me because my old writing style was very grandiose, a lot of words, a lot of descriptive terms. And now I'm trying to pare it down. I'm not copying his style, but I'm trying to see how his style may influence mine. What kind of feedback have you gotten from, uh, especially you, you mentioned the novelettes, which you brought in, which is nice, and um, one, War Springs Eternal, the other, Tortured and Tormented, Creating a School Shooter, and Is Suicide Painless? Some pretty heavy-duty things there, Joe. Yeah, the original story was um, Tortured and Tormented, and I only wrote that because we, we've it's no secret there's been a rash of school shootings. And it seems the argument always comes down to one of two things, mental health or gun control. And I know there has to be something deeper. So what I did was I created a first-person narrative and told the story from the shooter's point of view, taking him through his potential childhood up until he finally um, commits the ultimate act of evil, trying to understand the problem. Because you always hear when this occurs, or at least I've always heard when it occurs, it's, we need to do something. And if you ask someone, well, is that effective or would it have been effective? Would it have prevented? The answer is, well, but we need to do something. And my mind is, well, that's like me being diagnosed with, God forbid, prostate cancer and the doctor cutting off my toe. Mm-hmm. Well, we did something. And so I tried to get in and it was, put me in a little dark place because I'm creating a character that is an exaggeration of my, of my experiences and putting myself into that mindset and maybe bringing an understanding. So instead of the after effect or the simplistic answers, maybe start identifying what could be going wrong with someone. Mm-hmm. And then War Springs Eternal, really, that was supposed to be it. I wasn't going to continue with this these kind of stories. And War Springs Eternal, actually, the last scene in the story is a dream I had. I woke up real quick. I always have a notepad and paper by, a pen and paper by my uh, sleep table. And I really jotted down the dream so I wouldn't forget it. Hemingway was the character in the dream. And that's the ending scene in the story. And I just created a story around that. And it became, as it developed, it became about PTSD, shell shock in World War One, And so I created that particular story. Brian, our friend Brian had written, read both of them. And he, there was after Anthony Bourdain had committed suicide. Right. He said, you know, maybe try this. It might be something to consider. So that's where Is Suicide Painless came from. And then I decided to group them together and call them the Damaged and Broken Collection. Uh This was supposed to be the last. I just started writing the next one because as people read, they give me suggestions of what they would like to hear. And so the next story is about a woman abused. It was originally just going to be entitled Abused. Uh, Can't get out of an abusive relationship. But I had decided to entitle it It's Never Just a Slap. And then there's one, the next one after that is going to be on heroin addiction. Uh, another one is going to be on a child being from a broken home whose father abandons the, the child and the mother tries to work several jobs so the child gets lost. And then another one may be about stalking. 
So what do you hope to gain for your readers when they're looking at this whole series of pretty intense information and intense storyline? You know, I don't really... The goal was for me to tell the stories. And then I hope the readers can get a better understanding into into the different mindsets of other people. We talk a lot about suicide prevention. And in the book, my goal with that book in particular is to let the people left behind understand that there was nothing they could have done. They beat themselves up. I mean, you see it all the time. I have a, I think, I don't know anyone who's not been touched by suicide. And I have an acquaintance who really beats themselves up over it, Mm -hmm. feels guilt to this day. And Part of that was written with this person in mind. To, no, this, and this took the character from childhood. It, most people, I'm not going to say all because we never speak in absolutes, but the people I've been familiar with don't just wake up one day and say, that's it, I'm done. And so I was trying to show the cumulative effect. Mm-hmm. And hopefully the person who reads this, it's written for the person left behind. Even in the dedication, I even say that, that it is, um, say it again, it's just really quickly, this story is dedicated to those who could no longer survive, and to those who remain behind and have no choice but to do so. And so hopefully, in that case, it gives an understanding. Tortured and Tormented was to give an understanding into the shooter. War Springs Eternal about PTSD. And the culminations have varieties. I mean, they all are layered, but there aren't the happy social media picture of the world we have today. Uh, the tagline for the whole collection is that um, for all, for every one person who overcomes their demons, there are hundreds or perhaps thousands who do not. These are their stories. That's true. When uh, you're when you talk about the the different things that you've written, are they set locally? And are there any local ties? There are some local ties. Um, some people don't like the way I use the local ties because, <laughs> in you know, it, I paint them. Some of the books are oblique outlook, and so as I'm putting the character in inescapable or what the character views as a hopeless situation, sometimes you pick out the negative. In in Suicide is Painless, the character's view is not very positive, but in War Springs Eternal, where I use the location as well, they are. Mm -hmm. So it just depends on what the character development needs and how the area, specifically Pittston, plays a little bit of a background. I have to ask, because when I saw the different titles that you had, is Suicide Painless, of course, I immediately go to the series MASH and no. the song. Well, that's actually, the. I actually um, hope I am not violating any major copyright, because I did <laughs> cite it. But I put the entire lyrics in there, because most people don't know the lyrics to MASH. And, um, and a few people who read it didn't even know there were lyrics. And that yeah, that's where it actually came from was because, you know, the song is Suicide is Painless. Mm-hmm. And um, so that kind of was, always, that was always playing in my head and the disturbed um, version of Sound of Silence played in my head while I was writing it a lot. So now that you've taken on these very challenging and difficult and still yet to come topics that you're going to, that you're going to challenge yourself with, do you see anything coming along where someone's going to say, lighten up, Joe. Come on, we need something fun. (laughs) In the future, or has it already happened? (laughs) Because it's happened quite a few times. Um, This is where I'm writing right now. I was very fortunate in my life to have met Stephen King at a very young age. Um, 
at the time, I really didn't know who he was. Yeah. I knew the movies. I didn't read his books. And he had given me, he because after we got done meeting, um, he had said, you know, you're one of the first people who says, I'm not an aspiring writer. And again, something that I was 18 years old. I'm 54. I don't remember 18 that well. <laughs> um, but he had given me two pieces of advice, which I really had never forgot. One is your writing is for you. If you don't enjoy your story, nobody else will. Write what you know, write what you like, and write to entertain yourself. This is where I am right now. The other piece of advice was um, if you need to put an elderly grandmother at the bottom of an elevator shaft in a wheelchair and have it come down and splatter, then go ahead and do it. <laughs> well, I could see him saying that. Yeah. yeah, something to that effect. I don't remember the exact words. I do remember the about making sure you enjoy your story. And even though while I'm writing these, and they are they are dark topics, I do think that what I always tell people is when you're reading it, read for the story, not necessarily just the content. Is the story being told? Are you becoming involved in the story? Are you interested in the characters? My sister had read one, and she, was, she said when one of the female characters had come to a demise, I didn't really, wasn't that connected to her. I said, but you weren't supposed to be. You, you know, you, it's showing, like I said, subtext, theory of omission trying to get the layers in where you're the character the focus is on is the character. It's first person narrative. So that's what you're focused on. You should be that character. And then if you, when I told her what it meant, then she understood it. So unfortunately, sometimes you have to tell people what things mean, but you know, I try to really, like I said, it's a new way to write for me before I used to spoon feed everything. As a matter of fact, on my blog, I'm doing something called does Hemingway's theory of omission work in the spoon fed generation? Because we tend to spoon feed. I was an educator at the local college for a while and students are very used to having, you know, and it's just, it's not, it's not a criticism. It's just the nature of it's the way that they are. Yeah. It's the way things have become. And now I'm wondering if this theory of omission, will it still have a place? I mean, I'm nobody. I'm a chiropractor in Kingston. I write for my own pleasure. I'm self-published this time. I'm trying to talk Brian into be, take a role as a literary agent. There you go, buddy. If you're listening, now you're stuck. Um, and help move it along so we can do things together as friends instead of if there is a payoff in the future. And I'm not. I don't. I'm not I looking have, for. I don't have looking delusions. for a movie deal. I mean, yeah, I don't have delusions of grandeur to that effect. But you never know. I mean, you know, you know, Mission to Mars was a free book on the internet. So you, you, you never know what things will become, or the Martian was, I'm sorry. Mm-hmm. And you never know, but I would like to, and if it, God willing, something happens, I'd like my friends to come with me instead of some stranger. So what advice would you give? Because that was another one of the reasons why I wanted you to join us today, because there are so many, as you said, students, people who may, may not take a class, mm-hmm. but like to blog, like to write. So for somebody who's actually got things that they can hand out to people now, mm-hmm. what would, what kind of advice do you give? Just write. One of the my pet peeves, I've never been the world's greatest grammarian. My Amazon page comes right out and says, I'm a storyteller, not an essayist. There are grammar issues in my book, some intentional, though. It's one of the reasons I, I have an issue. Um, John Paul Bisquick, I was just watching his paintings, this neo-expressionist artist from New York City. He, he died young from an overdose. But his drawings and his artwork, if you look at it, you think, oh, what is this? It's like juvenile scribblings. 
But then when you examine them, you start seeing the depth of what he was trying to convey to people. And what I'm trying to, and that's why, but he didn't have an editor. He didn't have some editor standing over his shoulder or someone who was a academic artist correcting his, uh, his vision. Because if he did, he might've created nothing. Mm -hmm. So while I understand proper English and usage and all that other stuff, when I use sentence fragments in a story, it's because I want you to be fragmented. The character's fragmented at that particular point. When I use a run-on sentence, it's because I want you to run on. When I use overuse commas, it's because I want you to slow down. When instead of a list with comma, 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 I use and this, and that, and this. It's because I'm emphasizing everything that comes after the word and. So I'm trying to, exp I'm, trying, I'm telling a story. I'm not writing in the great American essay. I'm trying to be a storyteller. I'm not an author. I'm a storyteller. I just use the written word to tell these stories. So write. If you enjoy writing, just write. Don't let the grammarians get you down. And that's where it happens. I actually got kicked off of a Facebook author group. They were ripping apart E.L. James. Now, I've never read the Fifty Shades series, but from what I've been told, the first book is a grammatical nightmare. I don't know. I've never read it. And they're, I did. <laughs> yeah. And they're ripping her apart on this particular author page. A bunch of people just like me sold a few books. Nothing, you know, I'm not a world-renowned author. And I just made the comment. I'm like, but E.L. James must have told one hell of a story because she's banked, you know, millions of dollars. And you're on a Facebook page complaining about her. Got booted right off the page. <laughs> well, again, there's I can, I can see where that can because you have the purists right. and you have the other side. Well, now that you've wet everyone's appetite for all this, how can someone get in touch with you, get in touch with your books, maybe uh, discuss and, and learn from you? Because I think you know, people such as yourself, storytellers, are a valuable resource to people who want to move on, try something different. Everybody needs a little bit of a hand. So how would they do that? Well, thank you. Uh, my website is pretty simple, shortstoryscribe.com. I like the short story, so that's the website. Amazon has an author page, um, Joseph Leonardi. Just put in the Amazon search engine. Uh, it should come to my author page or one of my books, and then you can find the author page. Uh, my books on my site are the least expensive because they're just PDF downloads. So if you wanted to go on and buy one, they're all, it's like you're just hitting download, just download it immediately if you buy it. If you're not comfortable going to a website and you prefer Amazon, they're available in both a Kindle book and a paperback. Of course, because Amazon keeps a share, they're priced a little bit, a little bit higher. Uh, I think the prices are fair on them. I tried to make them fair. I'm not getting rich off of, uh, off the royalties from them. They're just stories I wanted to tell. I hope people read. I hope people think, and I hope people maybe get a different understanding than the black and white world we've come to become immersed in. Awesome. Sounds like you're having fun. I am. I enjoy it. It's, it's a nice outlet. And for those who may be listening, who are friendly with me, the suicide book is not a manifesto. It's not anything personal. I get that a lot. It's, oh my God, are you okay? <laughs> I'm just telling stories. It's just stories to make you think. Yes. And the, it's funny when I write these, I always write the last uh, paragraph or two first. That's the first thing I usually, I write the first paragraph and then the closing paragraph. I get through about halfway and then there's about a week and a half of nothing. Just because I'm trying to get the character to the next point. And everyone will start, when are you going to finish? Because I, I write quickly. I mean, I, I churn these little 10,000 word novelettes out in roughly three or four weeks. But there's about a week and a half gap where nothing comes out. 
It's like I just I know I know point A and I know point D. I'm just trying to get from B to C. <laughs> and <laughs> once I get past that point, then everything just kind of rolls really quickly. But they are difficult topics. You you are putting I am putting my mind in the character for that moment in time. And so they can be difficult to get to the end point. But again, I do them for myself. I hope people find them good stories and if they don't like the particular content. If they read them, I hope it makes them think a little bit. If you are a survivor of some of these particular topics, understand it. it there's very little, at least in my personal experience, it's just personal. There's very little we can do. It's, you know, these are people who hide their afflictions very well because they don't want you to know. And you weren't going to know. Oh, I should have seen it. No, you probably shouldn't. Once again, that's Joe Leonardi, local storyteller. And if you would like to catch up with him, you can check out his website at shortstoryscribe.com. Coming up next, don't go away, the war on drugs from the prosecutor's perspective on Special Edition. Welcome back to Special Edition. U.S. Attorney for the Middle District of Pennsylvania, David Freed, has been involved in fighting the war on illegal drugs now for many years. He joins us here on Special Edition to tell us just exactly how his office throughout the state is helping many communities, just like ours, in that battle. U.S. Attorney for the Middle District of Pennsylvania, David Freed, welcome today. Oh man, this is a this is a big topic between healthcare fraud, opioids, heroin. There's so many things, and now we look at the U.S. Attorney for the Middle District and say, "What are you doing?" So these two topics really go hand in hand. Uh, if, if you think about the Middle District of Pennsylvania, you know, from from the from the Maryland border up to New York and, and into northeastern Pennsylvania. One of the things that characterizes this district is is we have uh, a lot of uh, health insurers, insurance companies here. You know, we have we have uh, you know Blue Cross, uh, Capital Blue Cross. You, know, you have Highmark. You have you have the the, the Northeast. You have Geisinger, uh, and anywhere that you have that, um, and you have uh, on the federal side Medicaid payments, on the state side Medicare payments. Uh, and then you have private pay, of course, and, and, and private insurance. Um, you're going to have a certain amount of fraud. Uh, in the situation we're in now here at the epicenter of this heroin and opioids crisis, that's where most of the investigative work is, is being concentrated on, 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 the, on the healthcare fraud uh, surrounding the heroin and opioids crisis, over prescribing. Uh, and, 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 we're doing, uh, I was just in a meeting yesterday uh, looking at some new technology uh, to analyze trends uh, with prescribing. You know, we have certain information in Pennsylvania. There's a, there's a, a prescription drug database mm-hmm. uh, now that there, there wasn't before, uh, so, so, which is a real help for physicians and pharmacists. You know, they can see if people are doctor shopping or, uh, or pharmacy shopping. Right. Um, and, and so that's just part of the information that we have prescribing information, you know, we have arrest information. We can synthesize all that and see, see what's going on. Uh, so, uh, you know, w- one of the things that we were looking at yesterday is, uh, you know, you can look at, uh, we, we know who the top prescribers are. 
uh, of of opioids. Oh, uh, who might not even know you know in any community? Well, that, that's right. Well, a couple of them know because they've been charged. Oh, okay. Uh, and you know, one of course was was uh, Dr. Lee, who yes. was from the Poconos. His right. trial was in Wilkesbury, right, uh, in the month of May, and, and he was convicted. Uh, and and was prescribing just massive amounts of, of opioids. So uh, what is what do they do? Get a kickback? No, for for, for Doctor Lee, uh, uh, he was uh, and he's convicted now. So so we can speak we can speak of it as uh, I don't have to say alleged right. anymore because he's convicted. Um, uh, you know, he would get insurance payments, uh, but he would also he did a lot of cash. Cash for for uh, office visits. Okay. And one of the charges, in addition to the drug dealing charges, and he was also convicted of uh, providing the drugs that caused the death, which is a very serious charge, carries a 20-year mandatory jail sentence. In addition to those charges, he was convicted of, of tax charges and money laundering because when the search warrant was done at his residence, one of his residences, uh, the law enforcement officers found a million dollars cash under a bed. In the residence. Now, the Attorney General of the United States was briefed on this case when he visited the district uh, last year around right. this time. And then he came to Scranton in June right. after the conviction. So we were able to give him the follow-up. And, and he went around the country talking about this case where a million dollars was found under the bed. Should have been in the mattress. That would have, that would have really done it. <laughs> well, that in the yard. Isn't that <laughs> yeah. how we do it in northeastern yeah, exactly. Pennsylvania? I think that's how, my grandma, that's how my grandmother did it in Pottsville, <laughs> I think. Uh, didn't trust the bank. Right. Uh, but... Um, we had, as part of the investigation, you know, the business records. So we were able to show these office visits. There wasn't any record of private payment. And then the people who were coming in said, yeah, we paid this amount, you know, 100 bucks a visit or whatever. And once we compared that with his schedule and the amount of people coming in, it, it equaled out almost to the dollar the amount of cash that, that we were able to find. So, so in, 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 in his particular case, it was, it was cash for visits. There's another doctor... Uh, who was the number one prescriber of opioids in the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania, working in mostly Schuylkill and Northumberland, Montour County, so in the Mount Carmel, uh, Shemokin area. Uh, and he is currently charged uh, and, and facing a trial coming up. Um, and, and there's essentially, you know, we didn't find a million dollars in his case, but what we have there are uh, the number of people that, that, that had substance use disorders and died uh, while they were under his care of overdoses. Mm. And he was the, num- the number one prescriber in those, in those you know, smaller counties with smaller population, the number one prescriber of opioids in the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. Not, did- not just the Middle District. Not, so that counts Philadelphia. That counts Pittsburgh, Erie, everywhere, number one in the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. Where does a physician get that amount well, they come just the- so you prescribe, and then the people go to the pharmacies to fill, and and the pharmacies are generally great partners with us uh, yeah. in law enforcement. Uh, but if you think about you know Walmart, for example, uh, you know the Walmart folks they'll fill, and if they have a problem, they'll go to the corporate and say, "Look, I think we have a problem." And 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 Walmart uh, has shut down certain doctors uh, from prescribing. Uh, in the Doctor Lee case, some of the prime witnesses were pharmacists who were filling all these prescriptions. One pharmacist in, in the Lee case stopped ordering the kind of drugs that he was prescribing so he wouldn't have to fill the wow. prescriptions anymore. That, wow. That's the way that, that, that he dealt with the situation, and they were, and they were very cooperative. So we're, we're looking at those cases in terms of, of potential criminal prosecution, 
but also in terms of, of fraud. Because what you see people doing now is knowing that we're looking at, at the opioids and, 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 and those particular schedules, uh, people who have these disorders will, will find a way to combine other drugs. So there'll be an opioid and something else that might kick up the, the uh, effect of the opioid. So they get a smaller amount of opioid maybe, but they get this other thing. Right. And so we're looking at that a, a, as well. Uh, the, the pure healthcare fraud cases at the federal level are those where uh, the, the services are generally being paid for uh, by med- m- Medicare. Oh. Uh, and and uh, you know, the st- state level has uh, Medicaid. Uh, and, and we worked together actually pretty well with the attorney general's office. Uh, so we're, we're, we're on the case looking at all that. Now, if you think about it, we're talking about millions of documents. Oh, it must, uh, it must tons be of so analysis. And we have people who are very adept at that. You know, wow. we, have, we have analysts uh, who, who are working on those issues. But, you know, any, it, go, it goes all the way down to, you know, people faking accidents, uh, anything like that. And anytime that happens, I'm, I'm an insurance fraud prosecutor from, from way back. I used to do insurance fraud cases. Uh, at the state level. And, and I never worried too much when I was doing insurance fraud prac- uh, prosecutions about how much money was involved because the, the Pennsylvania statute uh, criminalizes false statements in support of insurance claims. And anytime that happens and insurance companies are paying out money they shouldn't have to, that impacts all of us. Oh, it certainly does. As law-abiding citizens. Yes. So, so the healthcare fraud area in the middle district uh, you know, that, that's one area. That's a focus of mine uh, when I walked in the door. And look, I hope that we spend a lot of time looking for it and we don't find any. I'd count that a success. Uh, but uh, I'm, I'm pretty certain that we will if we keep looking for it. When, you know, obviously, the cases that you just talked about, um, the one that was prosecuted, the one that's coming up for prosecution, those are big. Mm-hmm. So what about the little, the little guy? who feels that or that I can get away with this. I know I'm petrified. I get a bill. I pay it. I make mm-hmm. sure all the eyes are out because I, I just wouldn't want to get in, be in that position. But there are so many people out there who are saying, oh, we'll fluff. Mm-hmm. We can, can you, is there a way to track all that back? And that must be needle in a haystack. Well, you know, that, that gets into some philosophical uh, issues. <laughs> uh at, at, at the federal level, you know, we're going to necessarily have to concentrate on the bigger, the bigger things uh, because we're putting those efforts in. Uh, we have, uh, you know, the analysts and, and the agents and, and, you know, we work in, in, in these cases. Not You know, DEA has people who just work on drug diversion mm. and that, that's diverting drugs uh, from their appropriate use uh, into, the, into the black market, essentially. We work with the DEA. FBI does these cases. Um, and and health and human services, uh, their investigators. We don't have very many of them in this region, but they're amazing. So we work very very well with them. So so working with them, we're we're, we're looking at the bigger stuff. One of the things that I've tried to communicate to my folks walking in the door, because so often this is about money. Like if it's a healthcare fraud case, how much? Will, you know, what's the amount of the fraud? How much money are we talking about? Right. And I understand that because we want to go after the people who are defrauding the government of the most money. However, to me. If if we've got somebody, uh, for example, who we know is overprescribing, uh, and 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 has been warned, and maybe has been sanctioned by the state authorities, but continues to overprescribe, 
and and we're at the point where you know, we don't really know if this person's making a huge profit, if the government's been defrauded of a lot of money, but we know that these opioids or whatever the product is are flooding the market. It's dangerous. Well, under under healthcare fraud, there are options we have other than charging that person with a crime. We can go after that person using the civil side of the office, so the civil courts, and try to get an injunction to stop that person from prescribing. It was just done in Northern Ohio. Uh, we're working on a couple of those cases now here uh, in the Middle District to see if we can do it. Now, mm-hmm. it might not always be the best thing. Uh, you don't want to negatively impact a criminal case. But one of the things that we've been tasked with doing uh, by this Attorney General, by this Justice Department, is we got to stop this. You know, We want to reduce deaths. Yes. Right? And in order to reduce deaths, you know, we, we've got to impact that supply. So if we get the right case to do an injunction to try to stop somebody from prescribing, uh, you better believe that, that we're going to do it. So getting into to the smaller things, uh, the Attorney General's Office of Pennsylvania has an insurance fraud unit. They're going to be a little more focused on the big stuff, but there are also uh, smaller insurance fraud prevention authorities, task forces throughout the state, uh, and it's not really a complicated statute. So it's going gonna, it's gonna to depend on where you are and what the philosophy of the prosecutor and, and the police are. But you can make a great example. We can make a great example uh, of people who are filing false claims, even though there might not be a lot of money involved, because every time that's paid out, as I said, it's costing you and me. Exactly. And that's, that's what I mean, because a lot of times you see, and of course, the news stories focus on, wow, you know, look at all this money and all these drugs and everything. Mm-hmm. But then again... You have all of that getting into the system. And one of the best things that I have seen are the communities. Now I know Hazleton has a drug van where you can go and get rid of those prescriptions and things like that. And you can go to the state police and different other police. And they had um, so many. I think that's wonderful because that's pretty much another aspect of what you're talking about by getting these things off the street. Sure. So that that addresses the, the public health side of it. And, you know, the attorney general's office has, has a sort of a pouch. Uh, the Pennsylvania attorney general's office has like a pouch return program. Yes. The DAs around this Commonwealth have put out the things that look like mailboxes. Yes. The drug take back boxes. Mm-hmm. I was DA. I had, I had, I think, 22 of them in the county. We had them at the colleges and police departments and everything. They're all over the place. So there are numerous options to get rid of your prescription drugs. I just saw some from a vacation that we took in the medicine cabinet at home and remembered, hey, I got to take those down to the police department oh. and, and throw them in the box. Um, those opportunities are there. You know, The other thing that Pennsylvania a- as a state has done uh, is pass Good Samaritan legislation so that if somebody overdoses, a person calls and stays with that person. You know, that person won't necessarily be prosecuted right. uh, you know, to try to save lives. So those things are being done to save lives. Uh, and, and, and that's our task. And, and we're going to use whatever tools we have at our disposal. Being a federal prosecutor now, uh, I've got a civil side of the office. You know, I have 11 civil attorneys that, you know, they defend the United States when we get sued, but they can also get out there and do active affirmative things. And that would be the kind of injunction to maybe stop somebody from overprescribing if that's what we see. And see, that's why I say when you start with the small things, because again, it's the same thing that we always think about when we think about somebody, a drug dealer. If you're, if I was carrying drugs, I don't think I'd want to be driving the flashy car and all that kind of stuff. I think you'd find me in a 52 Nova just doing the speed limit. But again, if you're, if you're dealing with small, 
And you don't know, there could be a bigger role underneath all that. So the small Medicare fraud, the, the small things like that can blossom. And sometimes it's the community, the pharmacists that are the ones to see it. Right. And that's where we get some of the best information. The, 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 the Dr. Lee case started with local authorities in Monroe County and then brought it to the DEA and, and, and brought it to us. So again, there's that, there's that cooperation. I want to make one more point mm-hmm. that I think will be interesting for folks about uh, sort of the drug business. So I'm talking about the illegal drugs now uh, in 2018 in the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania and all over the country. You know, you'll read about the drug seizures. We, you know, we've had two huge ones in the last month or so mm-hmm. uh, on Route 80. Oh, yes. Big amounts. And state police are out there uh, just just killing it, you know, just doing doing a wonderful job of interdiction and keeping us safe. We're starting to see more and more drugs come through the mail. Really? U.S. Postal Service, UPS, FedEx. Uh, and and that doesn't that mirror, though, what we're doing in society? Like we're clicking a button yeah. and ordering our, our school supplies, you know, rather than going to the stores. So... Drug dealing is is starting to go the way of the rest of the economy, and you know there's there's a lot to think about there. But you can think about if somebody sends twenty packages, uh, if seventeen of them get through, that's probably better than trying to have to hire trucks and 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 people you know to get to get your drugs to 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 your suppliers. So wow, that's just something interesting, and I think the folks in the community. Uh, you know, if you're, if you're, if you're living in your neighborhood and, and, and maybe you're home and, and, and you see the FedEx truck or the UPS truck or the, or the postal uh, package delivery pulling up to a house in your neighborhood way more than you'd expect, uh, that might be something you want to keep your eye on and maybe let the local authorities know. We, we do a good job. Postal service in particular, mm-hmm. uh, does a good job with the packages. I was just in a meeting last week with, with U.S. attorney from, Louisville, and that's the hub for UPS, and the U.S. Attorney from Memphis, and that's the hub for, for FedEx. And they can only look at so many packages for so long because they are on know? such tight timelines. How would you even know? Well, they have algorithms like everything else well, in our society yeah. now, looking at where things are coming from. Uh, Dogs? Uh, well, you have to have a level of suspicion to bring the dog in, oh, but, okay. but, but they do. State police does a ton of this, ton of this work. So I just wanted everybody to have a heads up on that. That's been something that that's that's you'd occasionally see it in years past. We're seeing more and more of that in this district. Drugs coming in through the mail. Attorney Freed, this is fascinating stuff. Well, I, thanks. I'm happy to come and talk about it anytime. You'll be back. like to thank once again U.S. Attorney for the Middle District of Pennsylvania, David Freed, for joining us on Special Edition. Now, don't go away. When we come back on Special Edition, remembering Sid Michaels Kavulich, not only a legislator, but also known for many years as a sportscaster throughout northeastern Pennsylvania. Memories from one who was right by his side when we return. Welcome back to Special Edition. Condolences and remembrances continue to come in from far and wide for Sid Michaels Kovulich. The 62-year-old passed away earlier this week at the University of Pennsylvania Hospital. Sid grew up in Lackawanna County, where he was very active in community service. He spent many years as a sportscaster on both television and radio. 
Many of us had the opportunity to work with Sid during that time. One of those, Intercom's Rob Nyhart. He was able to speak with Jason Barsky about his time spent in the field with Sid. Very happy to have uh, this man uh, join me right now because he's a Hall of Fame broadcaster locally and uh, someone I've been around a very little bit. However, learned a lot in those little interactions we've had. Uh, Rob Nyhart. Good morning, Rob. Uh, the reason I wanted to reach out to you, you know, I, yesterday in the morning, the news had broke that uh, Sid Michaels uh, Kavulich had, had passed away. And I, I saw you put a post up on Facebook. It was you and Sid at Yankee Stadium. Um, I'm assuming by your clothes it had to be the 70s? Oh, my God, yes. I'm getting more reaction to the pants I was wearing than than the message I put. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that was, that was, in the, that was around... 1976. Um, but in the picture, you're there with uh, Sid Michaels. And uh, and the manager of the Oakland A's at the time was Jim Marshall, uh, an original New York Met, and that's what we were talking to him about. Uh, what kind of guy was Sid? You know, what was oh, like? my God. Um, he, was, he was an amazing person, a great friend, uh, terrific sportscaster. He and Jim Miller... Uh, when they were on Channel 28 together for about 20 years, you, you really couldn't beat them. And that's not saying anything against the other TV anchors in sports because we're lucky to have so many good ones. But those two together were uh, were just unbelievable. And just being a friend, he was an amazing person. Um, you know, and, and when he got into politics, that, that didn't change him. He, he never changed from being Sid. Back then, you had a grind for stories. Oh, boy, did you ever. And, uh, I mean, that's why Sid and I were at Yankee Stadium so many times, I can't even count, uh, because he was doing sports uh, at that time for WEJL. And I was uh, I was doing sports shows and everything else for WBAX at the time. So we were at Yankee Stadium, and instead of relying on sources, we just would go to the stadium a couple times a month, really, and uh, get all kinds of interviews from all the the Yankees and the players coming in, and then we'd stockpile them and we'd be able to use them. So we That's... we always got uh, we always went right to the source. Besides, we were both big Yankee fans, so I mean, gee, so, like that was real work. Yeah, I was going to say it's like, oh god, I got to cover another Yankee game. This is my third one this week. <laughs> this is the worst job ever. You better pay I, for my gas. Can I, can I tell two funny stories? Absolutely, absolutely. That's the reason I have you on here because you know you, you know you knew him personally, and I, I just I wanted to know more about him. Well, in that picture, you can't see his face there, but you can see how long his hair was. Yeah. Uh, he looked just like a twin brother of the Yankee pitcher at the time named Ron Davis. Okay. And I kept wanting him, I kept urging him to, because we were in the clubhouse a lot, and I kept thinking that when one time he should walk in and uh, and just go to Ron Davis's locker and put his uniform on and see <laughs> if anybody, <laughs> but he wouldn't do it. You well, know? I mean... What would the reaction have been back then? Would it have just been a good prank? You think, or you think they would have just thrown? They would have thrown him out still, right? We would have. Uh, we would have been banned for life. Okay, all right. <laughs> but, <laughs> it would have been great, though. But uh, another thing that was a running gag between between me and Sid right up until now. I mean, it never stopped. Back then, uh, I used to get a season pass from the Yankees every year. I'd apply for it, and I'd get a season pass, and I can go anytime. 
Sid applied for a season pass every year and was denied every year and always <laughs> would have to get a game-by-game pass. And the guy who did it, the press officer at the time for the Yankees, his name was Mickey Morabito. So to this day, whenever Sid and I would, would talk to each other, we'd call each other and say, hey, Mickey Morabito has a, has a message for you. <laughs> and uh, when, he got to, when he got to be state rep, I, uh, I called him to congratulate him, and I said, oh, by the way, I just heard from Mickey Morabito, and he said, even though you're a state rep, you're still not getting a season pass. <laughs> Did they ever give him a reason as to why? Was it just a joke, or was it just... No, no, they just, they, they, they just kept denying him for some reason. He, he had always have to pay, you know, every, every time he wanted to go, he had to apply for a day pass. Oh my. Did he always want to get into politics, or was it just, you know, that's just where life took him? Uh, I, had, I had never, ever talked to him about politics, ever. I, I, I had no... Uh, no inkling that he would do that. Now, after he left uh, Channel 28, he he started working for Senator Bob Mello. Right. Um, I don't know. Maybe he got the the bug to get into politics then. But um, you so, know, he he did well for himself. And uh, I mean, do, do you know what he considered his greatest achievements in politics? Do you ever have those discussions with him, like what he? No, no, no. Sid and I never talked politics. Except, I, I can tell you now that. Um, he was one of my sources whenever uh, I, I wanted to talk on the air about uh, a bill that was coming up or the budget or whatever. Um, I would call Sid and just say, you know, like, what's going on? And Sid would, uh, you know, he, he would always tell me, well, here's what's happening. This is, this is going to have to happen because this is the budget. So whenever I got on to talk about certain bills of the budget, um, you know, he was one of my sources that, that let me know what was going on. All off the record, I'm guessing. Cause you, oh, it was off yeah. the record. I mean, it, it, there was no bias. It was like, yeah. you know, the Republicans are so bad. And he would just, uh, you know, spill it out what was going on and uh, what they were trying to achieve. And he told me many times how frustrating it was for him uh, to try and get things done because uh, because of the way Harrisburg worked. Now, that's what uh, someone had told me about uh, Sid and his work with the, in the state as an elected official. He said, you know, he didn't play those party politics. No, he just, he no, he didn't. You know, because he, he, de- he was a Democrat, correct? He was a Democrat, but, uh, but he was also, uh, he, he was very, very much for his constituents. Uh, yeah. He cared about every single one of them. And you're right, it didn't matter if you're Republican or Democrat, but Sid, uh, he was there, as he said many times, he, he was there to serve his constituents. And yeah. what he thought was best for them is uh, pretty much the way he went. And it's sad to know that I think I think we're at a time in our country where we need more people who are willing to do that. And it's sad to, <laughs> it's, it's sad to know we just lost one, you know. I agree. Uh, it's it's you know, horrible. It's, uh, yeah, the whole area is, you know, sad for this. It's, yeah. uh, not just because everybody knew him from <laughs> doing so great a job on sports. But uh, what he meant to the area, he, uh, I think he did good. Yeah, he did a, he did a good job. <laughs> My daughter teaches with his daughter. So Sid and I have been friends since the mid-'70s, and now my daughter and his daughter Ariel are friends because they work together. From what I understand, I know this story because your daughter has a free pass into the teacher's lounge whenever she wants, but her <laughs> Sid's daughter has to apply every single day to go get a cup of coffee. It's really sad. <laughs> that's, that's not bad, Jason. <laughs> you know, I'm, quick, I'm quick on my feet but, sometimes. Uh, but. I, uh, I got the phone call basically from uh, Chuck Sievertson from ABC Yeah, because... Uh, Chuck and I are best friends, and so is, is Sid, because at, at the time when he was at EJL, 
uh, Sid worked with two young guys, one named uh, Chuck Siebertson, who's now at ABC, and another young guy named Frank Anders. Whatever happened to that guy? I, I don't know. I think he's hanging around. Thank you for taking the time. I really appreciate it. I feel like I, based off your stories, you're so you know you're so good with your words. I, you know, I feel like I knew him a little bit now, just a little bit. So yeah, well, we're all at a loss now. We here at Intercom join with many others in sending our condolences to the family and friends of Sid Michaels Kavulich. For those who would like to remember Sid, there will be calling hours Sunday afternoon from 1 until 5 at Riverside Junior Senior High School in Taylor, where Sid graduated from. Then there will be an evening vigil at Divine Mercy Parish on Davis Street in Scranton, and the funeral service will be there on Monday morning. Thanks for listening to Special Edition, a production of Intercom Communications. Tune in is the audio platform with something for everyone. News. In order to secure convictions in a court of law, it is essential that we conclusively sports. The clock at four. Donchich. The step back three. You bet. Music. You set my world on podcasts. Whatever you love, hear it right here on TuneIn. Go to TuneIn.com or download the TuneIn app to start listening.